was a young man who had a mischievous temperament. He loved pranks and practical jokes, and he would pull stunts from time to time, of course, always in fun. His family lived in a typical country home, and they had a well, and they had an outhouse. For those of you who don't know what an outhouse is, it was the bathroom before there was indoor plumbing. It was similar to the portable toilets you see in the construction site or outdoor soccer fields. But instead of a chemical tank underneath, there was a, a hole in the ground. An outhouse, people wanted it out and away from the house for various reasons. Well, this particular outhouse was perched on the edge of a steep embankment. And one night, this young man was hanging out with his friends and decided to pull a prank. They thought it would be great fun to push the outhouse over the embankment and down the cliff. So they did, and they ran. The next morning, the boy's father confronted him and asked, did you push the outhouse over the cliff last night? He answered, I cannot tell a lie. Yes, I did. His father immediately proceeded to discipline him severely with a willow switch. Through his tears, the boy sobbed, at least I didn't lie. George Washington didn't get, didn't get spanked when he told the truth, saying he chopped down the cherry tree. And the father replied, well, George Washington's father was not in the cherry tree when he chopped it down. <laughs> do you always tell the truth, even when you're tempted to lie, or do you ever lie? Have you ever been caught in a lie? Maybe you just fudged on the truth. Someone has overheard saying, I, I wouldn't exactly call him a liar. Let's say, just say he lives on the wrong side of the facts. We, we, live all, we use all kinds of verbal gymnastics to avoid calling it lying. We say it's misrepresentations or they're untruths or they're exaggerations or I was just less than forthcoming. We just kind of dress it up with all kinds of things. Well, last Sunday, we discovered a church, the first church that had something called boldness, and boldness was based on truth. Another word for boldness can be called audacity. And the followers of Jesus, as we read last Sunday, had the audacity to tell everyone about Jesus' resurrection. They had the audacity to tell people the truth that Jesus was the only way to God. They had the audacity to challenge the government of that day, the Romans and Jews alike, saying they would obey God and not man. They had the audacity to pray to this God, Jesus, who had been dead and now was alive, and expect him to actually hear their prayer and answer their prayer. We're going to join the story today and discover that a new movement has begun and what God's design or plan was for this particular movement, and how the God of truth and a church founded on truth cannot be derailed by a simple lie, and how God deals with lies as well. Truth and consequences. What happened then? What does it mean to us today? Let's turn to Acts 4, Acts the fourth chapter, starting with verse 32. It's on page 886 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Acts 4, starting with verse 32. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy person among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them. 
brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your, your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is a strange story. Wouldn't you admit? Why, why is this story here? That's my question. Well, it happened. That's why. It happened. It demonstrates a contrast of what the church was to be and what the sinful condition of the human heart was like. And how God deals with a sin, particularly lying. And I want us to start with the positive because the first six verses we looked at show truth. They show a positive truth in what the church was to be. We start with God's plan for the church. God's plan for the church. This passage of scripture established a pattern or a waterline or an ideal. It was a picture of how the church ought to function both then and now. What was God's plan for the church? It starts with something called unity. Unity. In verse 32 it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. One heart. What does it mean to be one in heart? The word heart comes from cardia, which is used in the sense of reason or emotions and will. It denotes the inner being, the real you and the real me. And when we are truly possessed by God and soaked with his Holy Spirit, our hearts are aligned with God's priorities, his love, and his purposes. And when we all line up with the same God, the same leader, Jesus, are one in personhood, we're one in heart, then we're one with each other. We have unity. See, unity is God's plan. It's called agenda harmony in the book that's being studied in our connect groups. Agenda harmony. God's agenda is our agenda because we're all lined up with God's heart. Secondly, one mind. Our thoughts, the way we perceive and think are in line with Jesus. His words, his truth, and his priorities. There's loyalty to the word of God, the Bible. And it's the Bible, this document, that informs our mind. One mind, one heart, one document is the standard for our faith and practice. All our values, everything we do, think, and practice is lined up with the word of God. To experience God's plan for the church, we must begin with unity of heart and mind. We must have agenda harmony. 
together. Now today we have probably the most vicious and insidious attack on unity in the church we've ever seen in my lifetime. And if it's successful, this will destroy the unity of the church. One heart, one mind that existed from the very beginning. What is that attack? That attack has to do with the authority of the Bible, the authority of the Word of God, and the belief in the inerrancy of the scriptures in the original autographs. In 1993, a man named Albert Moeller was elected as the ninth president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, a Southern Baptist institution. And one of his first responsibilities as president of this seminary was to reestablish faculty who believed in and practiced and taught the inerrancy as the word of God. If you followed the controversy some 20 or so years ago, the Southern Baptist Church had this split over inerrancy. They were not in one heart and one mind. And in his own words, he tells the story of meeting with one elderly distinguished Bible professor over lunch prior to giving him his pink slip. Albert Moeller said this, he said, all we're asking is that you have the same view of scriptures that Jesus had. Well, what was the scriptures, what was Jesus' view of scripture? Jesus affirmed the account of the creation in Genesis. He talks about the creation. He talks about the establishment of marriage as between one man and one woman. He talks about the great flood in Noah's time, and he references the story of Jonah and the big fish and many, many other prophecies. Jesus believed and taught these as factual as historical and relevant. Believe the word as Jesus did. The professor said, I have never thought of it that way before. This issue of the inerrancy of scripture and the original, and when I say the original autographs, we, we know there are tiny variants that have happened as they've been copied down through the centuries, but the original autographs as they were originally written, inerrancy has been the watershed issue in the church today. And all the major dividing lines can be traced back to this one singular issue, the inerrancy and authority of scripture. Is it truth? And if we don't believe it's truth, we reap consequences. To be one in mind, in agreement with Jesus and his word. And that's the starting point for unity in the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. The church denominations that have compromised on inerrancy of the scripture, the Bible, have now forsaken the biblical view of homosexuality as sin. And they've now redefined marriage to include same-sex marriage. Those of you that have watched some of these denominations, one of them is the, pres- the, most, the latest one is the Presbyterian Church USA. The, pre- the PCUSA passed and now has ratified the redefinition of marriage just this last year. And it all started with saying the Bible contains the word of God, not the Bible is the word of God. It becomes very subjective and say, well, I, I'm looking for the word of God somewhere and I'm gonna decide what, which ones are God's word and which are not. No, the Bible is the word of God. And it follows their decision three years previous to ordain homosexuals into ministry. We have many friends, including Presbyterian pastors, who are now faced with a very, very difficult decision of breaking with their denomination. It's been a tortuous thing, but it all started with the PCUSA 
beginning to leave the inerrancy of the scripture and saying, we're going to interpret it the way we think it ought to be, and I'm going to put my mind in reason above the word of God. One mind means loyal to the word of God and the words of Jesus. It's not that we have to all think identically, but we do have to hold to a a set body of truth, the Bible. And when we all hold to our minds and our intellects to objective absolute truth, we can stay in unity. Now, isn't this a divisive issue? Some people say, isn't this dividing the church? Are we creating division? Norman Geisler famously said, when addressing the issue of inerrancy of scripture, said, I would rather be divided by truth than united in error. I would rather be divided by truth than united by error. It all starts with us giving our mind and heart and saying, I'm gonna stay in one heart and one mind, as Jesus did, being under him. We cannot be in unity unless we have that same attitude and that same heart and mind in the church of Jesus Christ. It's the Bible, the word of God. I know many of you have been watching the football season. Uh, In fact, yesterday, both Washington and Wisconsin won. And I know some people are probably watching Packers pretty soon. I'm sorry, but that's, that's the way it goes. But if you watch a football team, as I do, In order for the team to be effective, they have to follow the leadership of the coach. Don't look at the clock. What are you doing? Okay. (laughs) People need to use the same playbook. They, They need to be in unity in heart and mind. Can we develop that same kind of unity, heart and mind, being under the same coach, Jesus following the playbook of the word of God so that we can be on the same team? How can we develop that kind of unity in our church? Community. Secondly, after unity is unselfishness, letter B. Verse 32 says, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Now that's what stewardship is. I'm I'm gonna preach probably later in the spring about stewardship. That means it talks about giving and stuff, and I always give everybody warning, fair warning, that I'm gonna preach about stewardship so so you can uh, uh, be ready to receive from that. So, but stewardship is, is, the basic foundation is that Everything we have belongs to God, okay? You know, we tend to think of it, it's my house, it's my car, it's, it's, it's my bank account, it's, it's my family, it's whatever. Every good gift that we have belongs to God, and we are just stewards. We are just managers of, of those things. That's a stewardship. I really own nothing. It it's all belongs to God. I'm entrusted with the use of and responsible for the use of these gifts. And, and when we see that, our whole approach is totally different when it comes to things that we own or manage or steward. Now, two characteristics we note here is they had an intense sense of responsibility for each other. They had an intense sense of responsibility for each other. We're talking about true community here because he says, I'm responsible. Secondly, they had a real desire to share all they had. They had a desire to share all they had. Now, the sharing was not to make one look good, okay? When it says they shared everything, this was actually the shared in the use of their possessions, maybe not in the actual possession of them. In other words, people did not give up the right of personal property. They just had such a sense of unity that they shared in the use of whatever one had. And in this case, they sold something, they gave up something, they gave to those in need. What's mine is yours, I'm just gonna give it. Now this was not mandatory. 
This wasn't mandatory, it was voluntary. It wasn't legislated, but it was spontaneous. And it was a way to eliminate needs among them. It was a way to eliminate needs. Now, we can learn a lot from the first century church. Not that we're to sell everything we have and live in a commune together, but all my resources are at your disposal. Now, note one thing, the initiative for taking action on needs was always on the person who had the resources, not the people who had the need. God spoke to the, they had resources and they wanted to share. This responsibility is for all of us since we all have something to offer and the encouragement is find a need and fill it. Be aware of needs and fill them. Looking around, do I, what do I have to give to someone in need? Now, there's got to be balance in this. And, and they had issues in the New Testament church too. As we go through this, we'll find more of that. Sometimes, first of all, distinguishing needs from wants. And, and in Thessalonica, one of the cities of the early church, some people took advantage of the generosity of some and expected to be fed and supported with no effort on their behalf. Okay, this isn't what that's about. In fact, Paul wrote in, in 2 Thessalonians 3, he said, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. Yeah, they had problems with some people that were just freeloading. He said, we hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busybodies. Such people we command and urge to settle down and earn the bread they eat. This is addressing idleness or lazy people or freeloaders. And this, this could be a huge topic that we don't have time to go into. But suffice it to say is we have a responsibility if we're part of a community of believers. And as part of the community, God calls us to two things, compassion and responsibility. Compassion and responsibility. Both of those things. Finding a balance. Compassion on those in need and responsibility to work and do whatever we can. Unselfishness. The third part of God's plan for the church was a powerful witness. Verse 33 says, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurre resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is life change. Last week we talked about boldness because we're convinced of the resurrection and boldness because we've been changed. We've been transformed. There's a change in our life. We are different than what we were. How powerful is our witness as a church? Are, are we seeing lives change here at this church? Yes, we are. Are we seeing people come to Christ here? Yes, we are. How powerful is your witness personally? And how powerful is our witness as a church of Jesus Christ? Many of us chose to follow Jesus so long ago, it's hard to remember the before and after, before Jesus and after Jesus. Or maybe you gave your life to Jesus at a very early age and you don't have this radical transformation story, just a radical preservation story. Both are equally miraculous. A transformation, maybe you were preserved, all of those kinds of things. But what about the now? How is God changing your life now? Is there growth? Are, are you seeing changes in your life on a daily basis? See, this is far more than just the initial life change at salvation. We are being changed constantly, and we have to ask the question, how is God impacting my life today? And how is that moving out to be a powerful witness to help other people be changed? God's plan and his purpose and his pattern is for a powerful, ongoing witness of the transforming power of God to change your 
life. It's not static, it's ongoing and dynamic. Your story of life change, past or present, is powerful. Can you tell somebody? God did something in the past, but what's he done for you lately? That's the question. Fourthly, God's plan is for grace. Verse 33. It says, much grace was upon them all. When I say a person has a lot of grace or is gracious, what comes to, to mind? They're, they're giving, they're not demanding. They love unconditionally. And grace permeated the early church. Not condemnation, but grace. There's so, much, so many people that have the, have the impression of the church that we're just against everything. You, know, you can say, they're against this and against this, against this. No, what are we for? What, what do we extend grace for? How do we demonstrate love and acceptance? In, in Luke 7, we don't have time to, to read that, but there was a prostitute who washed the feet of Jesus with her tears. She had lived this awful life. She touched Jesus, and you were forbidden to touch a, a, a rabbi. She took her hair down and wiped his feet. She was weeping. And God used this as an illustration talking about the difference between the, how, the guy who was the host and this woman. The guy that was the host had, had you know, it was a pretty good guy. She was a prostitute. And he basically said, the more, the more grace we receive, the more grateful we are. Because we then understand the great gap between where we were and where God loved us. And God wants us as a church, as individuals and as a church, to, to extend grace to people. That there's, no, there's nobody that's untouchable. There's no sin that's too great for God to forgive. There's, there's nobody that's unreachable because Jesus died for everybody. And we all fell short of the glory of God. Some of us may have made it 97% almost or 95% or 60% or 40%. We all fall short, which means we can't earn that standing. It's by grace that we've been saved. Grace is receiving what we do not deserve. And we are called to extend grace. This church in, in the book of Acts was a, a church of grace, extending grace. That means loving people, accepting people for who they are. The fifth plan for the church was trust, trust. And this is huge. It says that they brought their money to the leadership for them to distribute in need. Trust, and this is trust specifically in leadership. God's plan is for us to trust our leaders. How tragic for the past years how church leaders have failed or proved unworthy of trust, whether it's financial scandals or, or moral failures or control or abuse by people, child abuse by clergy or teachers, sexual abuse. In the news, it was all about the Catholic clergy who, who had done this and covered it up, but Catholic clergy do not have a corner on the sexual abuse of children, nor the cover-up of abuse. It's part of the dark history of many, many church denominations that have shuffled people around and moved them and covered up abuse. And we've seen it time and again, the destructive part of that, that, that has totally undermined the trust in leadership. It takes years to reestablish. And in those times, I tell people, please, don't look at people. Don't put people on a pedestal. Look at God. Look at God in those things. Leaders fail. Jesus does not fail. And I thank God that the overwhelming majority of church leadership have not been in financial scandals, have not experienced moral failure, and have been faithful in confronting sin. Our responsibility is to protect and care for people, and trust and integrity is part of God's plan 
for the church. Trust and integrity. And I hope that we as leadership here would be found worthy of your trust. And finally, God's plan for his church includes something called encouragement. Now, it references one person, an encourager. This passage isn't about encouragement. It's really a reference to an encourager whose name is Barnabas. Barnabas. And if it's in the passage, it's important. It's important. Why is it important? We need encouragers. We need encouragers. They gave this guy a whole verse, an encourager. We hear negative every day, many times a day. We hear negative news and put-downs and tough days and big challenges. We need encouragement. We desperately need verbal encouragement. You are appreciated. Thank you for what you do. You are special. What a beautiful smile. Have you lost weight? You know, positive, whatever you want to say. Positive, positive, positive. One person estimated that we need 10, count them, 10 positives for every one negative. Well, we need a lot of positives every day to make up for those negatives, positives. And you know, sometimes we feel foolish being an encourager. Oh, they, you know, they're, I, they, they don't want to hear from me. I, I, I don't know if, what to say. You know what? Any word of encouragement is welcomed, I, I guarantee you, by anybody that receives it. Any encouragement. God has, has placed in the body of Christ people who are encouragers. And that may be your primary gift. And it talks in Romans 12 about the gift of encouragement. And you know what? When you have encouragers, it's like the whole atmosphere of, a, of an entire group, an entire church, an entire environment changes just by one encourager. And we can all provide this. It says Barnabas, for some reason, it was so important they put Barnabas, the encourager in that part of the church. When we come together to encourage one another, one of the greatest things about connect groups is that we get to talk to one another and connect with one another, and we get to encourage one another. And it's more than just a Sunday morning interaction because we can actually have a conversation that's more meaningful. Encouragement. And, and you can have those out in the lobby over coffee and, and treats. And by the way, the treats are always good when, when Bailey does them too. They're, I've, never been, I've never been in a church that has so much good food. I'm serious. Every Sunday morning out in the lobby, both services, we have food. And it's always incredible. Tell somebody. Find out who did it and tell them how good they are. Okay? Just do that. Encouragement. Powerful gift. Let's be the church of the positive. There's enough negative we deal with. So against this, this plan, this backdrop, God's plan for the church, there's unity, unselfishness, a powerful witness, there's grace, trust, and encouragement. All the needs of the people are filled. And then we discover a contrast. We get to chapter five. What do we find? It's this great, great church going, and all of a sudden we get to number two, the pretenders of the church. The pretenders of the church. Why did this story make it into Acts? Everything was looking so good. Because it happened this way. That's why, that's why it's there. You know, that's one thing I love about the Bible. It doesn't just gloss over and tell all the good. It tells the nitty-gritty and the struggles and the ups and downs and the sin and the redemption. It's just, all of those stories are there. The church was not perfect then and it's not perfect today. We have pretenders in every church. And if we are honest, we will discover that we all pretend a little bit at least. 
Now we start with a conspiracy, there's a plan. Some lies are spontaneous and some lies are planned. This was planned deception. Ananias and Sapphira actually planned, they came up with a plan to deceive. And what is so odd about this conspiracy is the church was full of grace. No one said you had to sell anything or give anything. There were no rules or laws that established selling and giving. Giving was voluntary, it wasn't compulsory. These were not dues that you had to pay to your union, they were gifts to be freely given. And nothing was wrong with bringing only part of the sale. They could have brought 20% or 50% or 5%, they didn't have to do anything. So what was so wrong? What did they do that was so wrong? They lied. They lied. Now, I remember as a kid growing up, you could do a lot of things. You could get mad, you could hit your brother, you could do, you know, there are things that I could do. But there's one thing I dared never, ever do. Lie. <laughs> I was in deep, deep water if I lied. Because it's so, my, my, my parents recognized the importance. These guys lied, okay? It's a big deal because Ananias and Sapphira made it look as if they brought the whole proceeds of the sale, not just part of it. Why? Because there was deception. Deception in this they gave to look good. They wanted to look good as everyone else. They wanted to look good just like everybody else. They gave to look good. They lied by their actions. Now, do we ever do that? Do we ever lie by our actions? Do we ever pretend? Not necessarily with money, although some do it with money. As long as they get a plaque recognizing their gift, or as long as they get a building named after them. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a building named after you as long as that's not your motivation, okay? You know, I, I know a lot of great people that have had buildings named after them, and it wasn't their, that wasn't the reason they gave. Somebody else decided that. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but giving to look good or lying by your actions, it's pretending. And deep down, Inside, the main motive is to look good, to be noticed. There's, a, there's an interesting passage, we'll probably talk about this when we get to stewardship, in Matthew 6, where it talks about the, the, the religious people that would come and they would make a big display of their giving and make sure everybody knew what they gave. And, and basically what Jesus said is they wanted to look good and their reward is they look good but they won't have any other reward. They just look good, that's okay. If that's what you wanna do. And, and that was kind of the motivation, to look good, to look good. And, and it was deception, deception is serious. It's the totally opposite of the truth. And sometimes it's so subtle we don't even notice it. And we sweep it under the carpet of pride and oh, I just feel good about ourselves. You know, we just kinda of like to do that. It's not just with money, it's just things we do. You know, you do something really nice for somebody and you hope somebody noticed. Anybody else like me? <laughs> he said, I hope, I hope my neighbor saw me pick up that, that garbage in his lawn. I hope, they, I hope they know what a great guy I am. I, you know, you just, you do these things and, and there's this, this deception of wanting to feel good about ourselves and look good. Well, this was a lie of words, a lie of actions, trying to look good in order to be noticed. And then we find hypocrisy, which was actually living the lie, living the lie. Pretending. Prede pretending has severe consequences. Because number one, it subverts truth in all areas of our life. If we pretend, it subverts the truth in all areas of our lives. When pretending permeates a church, nothing is as it seems, nothing is real, nothing can be trusted. 
means there's no authenticity in relationships. We have to, if we have community, we have to have relationship. And relationships are based on authenticity and, and truth. And truth must be present in order for us to have true community and relationships. And that's why it's so serious when we pretend instead of being real. Real. You know, you know people today are looking for, in a church, I think two things, relevance and authenticity. Relevance, what difference does it make if I, you know, what, what's going on there? Relevance, but they're looking for authenticity. And I can, I can guarantee you, they walk in that door and they know immediately. You, you know. You can walk into a place and you can smell pretending a mile away or posturing or trying to be something we're not. And the thing I love about this church is you are authentic. You are authentic. That's what people are desperately looking for is authenticity. The second consequence of pretending is it renders us powerless. It renders us powerless. Our power to be bold is based on truth. I got a speeding ticket once. Actually, more than once, but I'm only admitting to this one. And I went to court to fight this speeding ticket. I, I knew I might be guilty, but I wanted to explain the circumstances. I wanted to explain, I wanted to make an excuse in front of the judge, okay? How many of you have done that too, okay? I need to know I'm in company. Thank you, both of you, for admitting. I see a few more hands, I see your hands. Okay, there we go, okay. You've done that, you're gonna plead your case, okay? But truth was not on my side, and I knew I was guilty. I tried to be bold, I tried to be convincing, but I had no conviction and I had no power because the truth was I was guilty. I wanted so badly to boldly argue my case in front of that judge, but instead I just kind of wilted. And I will never, I will never forget that feeling as long as I live because truth was not on my side. And because truth was not on my side, I was powerless. I just was powerless. I did get the ticket reduced, just so you know. That, that did happen. But if truth is not on our side, we are rendered powerless. Hypocrisy or pretending renders us impotent, powerless. And, and the church today, in general, is filled with powerless people, people who think they have power, but they're impotent instead. Why? Because they're pretending pretending to be a follower of Jesus, but spending time with him only on Sunday morning. There's no devotional life, no communication, no communion, no conversation. Pretenders who feign righteousness yet refuse to give up secret sins. Materialism or lust or pornography, anger, gossip, abuse, manipulation or pride. Thirdly, hypocrisy. Number three, lies to people and to God. Hypocrisy lies to people and to God. How serious is this? You know, you think, well, we're all kind of a little bit of hypocritical. We all do pretend. Yeah, that's true. But what are the consequences? How serious? Peter said this about them. Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Wow. What's Satan got to do with this? Well, it's satanic to lie to God. God is truth. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. It's antithetical to try to live in truth and lie. 
In 1 John 1, 5 through 7, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, unity, agenda, harmony, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Why was the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira so severe? Because lying is serious, especially if it's lying to God. So we have conspiracy and deception and hypocrisy. And then we had also, we had selfishness, kept for yourself. What's mine is mine, I control it. Note the contrast between God's plan for the church that we looked at in the, in the beginning part and the pretender's effect on the church. We have unity, we have conspiracy. We have unselfishness, we have selfishness. We have a powerful witness and we have hypocrisy, which is powerlessness. We have grace versus law and obligation. We have trust or we have deception. We have blessing with all the needs met or judgment. So what happened? What happened? Judgment. The consequences of the lie. Both Ananias and Sapphira died instantly. Wow, couldn't, couldn't God just have grown their nose like Pinocchio or something? You know, you, th you think, wow, this is severe. I'm not saying that you're going to die instantly if you tell a lie or live a lie, but it's really a picture of our spiritual state. We lie, we sin, we die spiritually. It comes in, in the way between us and our relationship with God. And if we live in a constant lifestyle of lies, pretending at some point our spiritual destiny of eternal life is in question. Lied to God. All sin is against God. God judges sin in three time zones. In the past, he judged sin on the cross at Calvary. In the present, he judges sin amongst his people. In the future, he will judge sin on the last day. This account demonstrates that God judges sin in the present, not just past or future. But the purpose of his judgment, always note, and please, this is the encouragement, is always redemptive. It's always to bring us into relationship. It says, we find that God will always prevail. See, great fear sees the whole church and all those who heard about these events. God's grace, his redemption, is that he uses these for teaching moments. God's motive for judging sin was the preservation of relationship. God loves us so much he will affect judgment in order to get our attention, teach the right path, and preserve this precious relationship that he died to institute. The good news is that God wants to purify the church and purify us so that we can become all that we are created to be. Judgment brings us to repentance, restoration, and full blessing. I'm just glad to know, and I hope you are glad to know, that the first church had problems too. It wasn't perfect. Someone said, there's always dirt with divinity. Where are we today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you just tell it like it is. And we thank you for this account and this story, Lord, that, that you showed how much you love the church. And I pray, Lord, today that as we celebrate communion, that the grace that was extended us, the the, the resurrection power through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, your death, 
for us so we could live. And I pray, Lord, today that you would speak to us in a new way today as we celebrate your Lord's Supper today.